This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, whose scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. The allergy cold and flu aisle at the pharmacy is vast. But have you ever felt like some of those medications really don't do much? Well, you may be on to something. Kind of a stunning new message from the FDA. A key ingredient in the -the over-the-counter cold medicines that so many of us buy, well, it just doesn't work. It's in a lot of over-the-counter cold treatments uh, like Sudafed, NyQuil, those kind of things. Just read those labels. It's in almost everything. The 10-milligram over-the-counter drug performs no better than a placebo. That key ingredient is phenylephrine, and you'll find it in many over-the-counter decongestant medicines. A Food and Drug Administration advisory panel unanimously agreed last week that the ingredient is ineffective when taken orally. So have we all been throwing money away? The decision could affect hundreds of products, including Sudafed PE, NyQuil, severe cold and flu, and Benadryl allergy plus congestion. This comes as allergies are worsening with the effects of climate change and as we head into cold and flu season. What happens next and what should you be reaching for? This conversation is part of our In Good Health series, when we put your health questions to the experts. For this edition, we discuss with our panel what the best alternatives for relief are and how you should be preparing for the colder months as sicknesses surge. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation, and if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers, and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Before we welcome our panel, we'll take a moment to note that our experts are not a substitute for your doctor when it comes to medical advice, and you should always speak to your doctor when it comes to medications and their effect on you. Let's get into it. Here with us is Dr. Zachary Rubin. He's an allergist and clinical immunologist at Oakbrook Allergists in Illinois. Dr. Rubin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Jennifer Lay, a clinical pharmacist and member of the FDA Advisory Committee that evaluated phenylephrine. She's also a professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of California, San Diego, Skaggs School of Pharmacy. Professor Lay, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Greetings, everyone. And Dr. Mark Dykowitz is also on the FDA Advisory Committee that took this vote. He's the Chief of Allergy and Immunology at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. He's also the Raymond and Alberta Slavin Endowed Professor in Allergy and Immunology. Dr. Dykowitz, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So let's talk more about phenylephrine. Dr. Dykowitz, why was it originally developed? Um, There was a need to have a decongestant uh, product, several decongestant products. In terms of what causes congestion in the nose, 
Uh, whether it's a cold, whether it's allergies, you get uh, enlargement, temporarily dilation of small blood vessels within the nose. So we need products that would, if you will, reduce those uh, enlarged blood vessels, and that thereby reduces the nasal congestion. Uh, we did have three um, uh, agents available, phenylpropanolamine, we still have pseudoephedrine, and then, of course, we're talking about phenylephrine. Phenylpropanolamine uh, was removed from the market when it was found to be associated with uh, uh, strokes in women, and so we were down to two, and those two agents have been the mainstay of the oral decongestants that we've been working with. Professor Lay, you and Dr. Dekowitz were on the advisory panel. What happened during the meeting where this unanimous decision was made? Well, we reviewed um, the most recent clinical data since 2007, and that's what we were tasked to do, um, review the pharmacology as well as the clinical trials data um, since 2007, um, because that's when the last panel um, reviewed data suggested that more efficacy trials would be done, particularly at higher doses. Now, Dr. Rubin, phenylephrine was approved by the FDA in the 1970s, so it's been on the market for over 50 years. But there were questions about its efficacy as far back as 2007, if not earlier. Were you surprised by the outcome of this advisory panel? I wasn't surprised by the outcome because many of my patients, including myself, have seen some of the data, have tried it themselves, and didn't find that that particular medication worked, but it's often combined with other cough and cold medicines. And so people tend to get better using the other medicines and and don't typically go to phenylephrine. They'll say, oh, I'll get the good stuff behind the counter, the, the pseudoephedrine, also known as Sudafed. Professor Lay, why did it take so long for experts to address the efficacy of this drug? I think it's um, a combination of several factors. Um, first, it would be, you know, the way we define clinical trials, uh, the robustness of it's different then from what it is now. Um, right now, for any drug approval, we'll need at least two uh, phase three clinical trials that demonstrate efficacy. And the, the original clinical trials used a different endpoint, meaning um, what, what was evaluated to demonstrate efficacy, and that was based on nasal airway resistant. Um, while it's an objective finding, um, it doesn't necessarily translate to symptomatic improvement that a patient would feel. But the recent data, the three clinical trials, um, two of which is published, um, actually does provide more of um, the endpoint of clinical efficacy of of nasal uh, congestion scoring. So patients actually reported this, and that's what resulted in um, a conclusion of all the recent clinical trials that oral phenylephrine was not um, efficacious. Now, Dr. Dykowitz, we're saying this medication doesn't work orally. Is there another application of the medication that, that could work to improve congestion? Yes, uh, the nasal spray version of phenylephrine, nasal is one of the trade names that does work. One of the problems with oral phenylephrine, and this was data that was presented to the committee, is that when you take it orally, it uh, gets, if you will, broken down 
uh, in the gut very rapidly uh, through the liver, gets broken down. So maybe about 1% of the dose actually gets into the circulation. This is opposed to if you take a nasal phenylephrine spray where you're putting it directly on the lines of the nose. So that uh, still works. Well, we did reach out to the FDA to be part of the discussion. They declined to be part of the panel, but sent back this information saying, quote, if the FDA determines that oral phenylephrine is no longer considered generally recognized as safe and effective under the conditions of use, the FDA would issue a proposed order to amend drugs for over-the-counter use by removing oral phenylephrine as an active ingredient. Stakeholders would have the opportunity to comment on the proposed order, including by providing additional data. The FDA has no further information to provide at this time regarding the timing of any decision the agency may make following the advisory committee meeting, end quote. Dr. Rubin, these medications containing phenylephrine remain on store shelves. So what happens next? Well, we need to work on educating the public about what are safe and effective medications that you can get over the counter and understanding that there is a difference between generic names and brand names, and oftentimes people are getting confused about, well, am I taking Sudafed or Sudafed PE? It's, it's very nuanced, and so we need people to look and see. Phenylephrine is the drug that we're looking at that hopefully we can pluck off of these combination medications because, as you said before, there's all these different names. It's in tons of different drugs, such as Alka-Seltzer plus cold and flu, XL3 cold and cough, Robitussin peak cold. There's a lot of different names that contain this medication that does need to come off since it's not effective and it could potentially delay treatment or using other medications or potentially have some side effects for a small group of people. And I want to be clear here, Professor Lay, the FDA statement that we said, that we just uh, shared, says that if the FDA determines that oral phenylephrine is no longer considered generally recognized as safe and effective under the conditions of use, the FDA would issue a proposed order to amend the drugs as an active ingredient. What is the difference between this drug being an active ingredient in a medication and it just being a listed ingredient? Um, well, the active ingredient would imply that the, the, the product would contain that active um, phenylephrine. Um, generally, the dose that is, are, that is in over-the-counter product is about 10 milligram. So that's what would be provided. But... Um, as pharmacologic data have demonstrated, and this was done recently by the FDA, that um, even with a 10 milligram, very little actually gets into the blood to get to the site of action, which is the, um, the nose, to provide that symptomatic relief. That's Jennifer Lay, a pharmacist on the FDA committee that evaluated phenylephrine. Professor Lay, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. We're going to head to a quick break, but when we come back, we take a closer look at how allergy season is changing from how much more intense it is to how much longer it tends to last. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. 
Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. Let's get back to our discussion about phenylephrine. That's the decongestant ingredient in at least 250 products. They were worth nearly $1.8 billion in sales last year, according to the FDA. The Consumer Healthcare Products Association, or CHPA, is a trade association representing companies that make over-the-counter medication. The organization released a statement about the FDA advisory panel meeting saying, quote, Oral phenylephrine has been relied upon as a beneficial nasal decongestant by American families for decades, and FDA has repeatedly concluded the ingredient is safe and effective. The burdens created from decreased choice and availability of these products would be placed directly onto consumers and an already strained U.S. healthcare system which is why CHPA encourages the panel to consider the real-world experience and needs of consumers when making decisions that will have such broad implications, end quote. Dr. Dakowitz, what has the FDA said about the efficacy of this drug before last week's panel meeting? Well, there was, if you will, a grandfathering approach, if I would summarize it, uh, based upon the studies that were done way back in the 1970s saying that the drug was effective. And then there have been several attempts um, over the last 13 years or so to relook at evidence that's available. One of the problems, there are a couple problems with the original studies, and these were issues that were discussed at the advisory meeting. One was when you go back to those old studies, um, they don't really match up to our current standards of study design. Very small numbers of patients were studied. Um, these were done generally at a single st- uh, study site. They didn't have statistical analysis plans. There was actually a lot of inconsistency uh, between the studies. And even at the time that uh, some of the studies were done, there was contemporaneous questioning of the uh, validity of the data. And they, at the FDA, even did some forensic analysis of the results of the studies at one site and thought that they looked highly suspicious. So you're looking at a, a, shall we say, a legacy of studies that don't really meet current uh, scientific study standards. And it was really in the aftermath of the 2007 advisory meeting and the uh, performance of studies of a modern design that we got now clear data that shows phenylephrine is not effective as a congestant or decongestant. We got this email from Jan in Florida who says the drug manufacturers must have known these drugs were not effective. How can they be trusted? Professor Lay, what role do the drug manufacturers play here? I think that um, a huge role, obviously, because they are the maker and they are responsible for the safety as well as the efficacy of the products. Now, um, I, I think that everyone um, is involved um, with with being responsible because at the end of the day, it's this consumer who chooses to buy these products over the counter. So I urge all the consumers to be more 
um, proactive in learning about what you are actually taking. And it's interesting that one of the, your um, listener mentioned that, oh, this is a known fact years ago um, that this is not effective. In fact, in the, I believe it was 1972, the cold um, co- cough cold panel, and even at that time, the panel said that the data were um, were not strongly, and I quote this, not strongly indicative of efficacy. So that's kind of like an, a, a, a fact that was out there um, years ago, and we just needed more robust um, studies, and we do now. Well, and, well it's, on, on one side, I can see the, the need for more robust studies, and the message you're referencing came from a pharmacist, but the, the general public doesn't necessarily have visibility of pharmacological studies around the efficacy of, of certain ingredients in, in drug medications. It, it, it can be difficult to even <laughs> read some of the ingredients off of a label. So how much responsibility is on the consumer and how much responsibility is on the FDA and drug manufacturers? Well, I, I, this is why I mentioned everyone. Um, so yes, the drug manufacturer is involved and should be pr- provide efficacy and safety data to the public. The FDA um, is also involved because they are the one who set the standards and the standards for the clinical trials on efficacy has changed. And, and what we've known then in terms of what would be the best clinical endpoint that would be meaningful for consumers um, is what we use now. Remember, we use the nasal congestion scoring versus uh, a, a different clinical parameter from before. Now, when I go back to consumers, um, I think it's important that consumers are aware. For me, and just for me personally, um, I, I, I shy away from symptomatic treatment of, of um, conditions that I know might go away in two to three days. And that's me. I don't have allergic rhinitis. I do get common cold. And I just weigh it out because I know that this, uh, the use of this medication is only for temporary relief of the nasal congestion, which does not affect my daily life necessarily. So, and that's what I mean by consumers, um, um, deciding because ultimately they decide whether or not they're going to take a medication for symptomatic relief. Hey, Dr. Rubin, I'd love to hear from you on this as well as someone who sees patients. <laughs> we're, we're in an environment where it can be very difficult to take time off work, for instance. If you're feeling under the weather, you've got a stuffy nose, you're not feeling great, but you still have to go to work and function. And so you reach for something that you hope will help you get through the day. How are you advising your patients about accessing over-the-counter medications, including now, as we know, a medication that may not be effective? Absolutely. So healthcare professionals are stakeholders in this as well. They have to provide a lot of education about different ways to take care of different ailments. And when it comes to cold or allergy relief, when you have congestion, knowing that the public should be aware that oral phenylephrine does not work. We also have nasal sprays that contain decongestants such as phenylephrine or oxymetazoline, also known as afrin, that if they're counseled on this carefully, they could use that for short-term relief. But I'm not a huge fan of using those types of nasal sprays long-term. If you're using it for more than three days, you do run the risk of a condition called rhinitis medicamentosa, which is a type of rebound congestion where you essentially become dependent upon the spray. And, And from time to time, I have patients who were never told that there was this risk, even though it's on the package labeling that that's a potential risk, that they'll come in and have terrible congestion because of overuse of an over-the-counter medication. 
that's used. We still also have pseudoephedrine orally. It's just sold behind the counter in most states uh, since 2005. And so we can use that. There's combination medications that include an oral antihistamine plus a, a decongestant that's pseudoephedrine. So if you've ever heard of Claritin D, Zyrtec D, Allegra D, those medications in combination can be potentially helpful um, for cold symptoms and for allergy relief short term. I never recommend these medications long term, though. What are some other side effects other decongestant medications uh, people might take, should watch out for? Uh, They should watch out for headaches, irritability, difficulty sleeping. Sometimes patients could have a little bit of heart palpitations. Overuse of decongestants in general can raise blood pressure. So if you have a history of high blood pressure, thyroid disease, prostate problems, diabetes, you definitely need to talk with your doctor before starting them and make sure if you do, you should use it on a short-term basis. Uh, Professor Lay, what would you like to see going forward in terms of trials that could help catch ineffective or potentially harmful ingredients? Well, I I think that at least for oral um, phenylephrine here at the committee, um, we did not even, um, the the majority of us did not recommend even further trials to um, even look at higher doses since it's it's, uh, not efficacious. Now, I I think that particularly for over-the-counter, and this is my personal opinion, um, over-the-counter products, I think there needs to be, a, uh, if there hasn't already, um, I think there needs to be more studies that really look into the efficacy. I think the safety for most of the products there are, are have been demonstrated, but this over OTC products are high users. I mean, a lot of patients have access, everyone has access to it, and it's, it's a large industry. Um, and I know this is, could be burdensome to kind of go back and think of all the products that's been grandfathered in. But I think for the ones that we know in the medical community and pharmacy community that that may not be as effective over time, like um, phenylephrine, that should be looked at. Well, the fall season officially begins this week, specifically this Saturday, for those ready to pull out their autumn gear. But it also means fall allergies, which are getting worse and lasting longer due to the effects of climate change. Research from 2021 found that warming temperatures are resulting in longer and more concentrated pollen seasons. We heard from so many of you who are experiencing heightened allergies lately. One text member writes, an uptick in allergies lately is an understatement. Personally, I'm on three different types of antihistamine means taken throughout the day just to survive walking out the front door. And sometimes the contaminants outside are so bad that an asthma attack may ensue as well. And another of you writes, in the last decade, allergy season has become year-round. As someone who can start with allergies and have it turn into serious asthmatic episodes, I hate it. There is no escaping it either. Staying indoors does not help. Dr. Dekowitz, we mentioned the effects of climate change, but give us more detail on why some people are experiencing more intense allergies for longer. Well, in terms of, for instance, the pollen counts, uh, because of climate change, we are having longer uh, pollen seasons. There's even some data that says for the pollen grains that are getting released from plants, the allergen proteins, the things in the pollens that are actually causing the allergic response, they are now getting present in higher concentrations. So even pollen counts, if you compare five years ago to today, they may look a little bit higher. The um, actual 
allergen-causing problems within the pollens is worse. So you also, because of the extremes of weather, including uh, rain, uh, the aftermath of rain is mold, and people are very much uh, impacted by that as well. And then on top of all the things going on with allergens, you've got uh, wildfires uh, in Canada and elsewhere. That's creating fine particulates that irritate the uh, nasal passages, and they can even penetrate through the lungs into the body to cause adverse health effects. So you really have, uh, you're getting hit by, by multiple different directions with climate change. As one aside, though, with the um, listener who's having year-round problems, you also have to be mindful that about a third of people who have year-round problems have non-allergic nose problems, and that can only be determined by testing. But that uh, is uh, something that opens a different repertoire of treatment. We're discussing a worsening allergy season and are going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from a member of the 1A Text Club who says, I've been diagnosed with an allergy called alpha-gal, which is an allergy to mammalian meat. It's brought on by a tick bite, and ticks range and lifespans are increasing due to climate change. Dr. Rubin, first, in terms of how our body responds to allergens, how different is a reaction to plant pollen versus, say, a food or animal allergy? Right, so when somebody has seasonal allergies versus food allergy, it actually kind of looks similar in terms of the immune response to something called immunoglobulin E or IgE. Uh, But where that acts and how severe it is, is what's different. So with seasonal allergies, you're going to have more of those nasal symptoms. It may be related to asthma as well. You could have eye problems. When it comes to a food allergy, that's when it can become quite severe. This is where you could have all sorts of symptoms ranging from hives to swelling, problems breathing, wheezing, vomiting. In severe enough situations, you can have a combination of these symptoms or even potentially a drop in blood pressure, which could be uh, a sign of something called anaphylaxis, which is a systemic, potentially life-threatening allergic reaction. And in terms of this uh, concept of alpha-gal syndrome, we are seeing more and more people diagnosed with this condition. And the CDC had a paper published recently estimating that this may be the 10th most common food allergen in the United States that's brought on by tick bites that sensitizes people to a sugar molecule that's called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, or alpha-gal for short. And that's found in pretty much every mammal except for humans and certain primates. And so 
when people get this tick bite from something called the Lone Star Tick and their immune system sees this new sugar molecule, it gets confused and starts making that similar food allergic response. We call that sensitization. And then people who eat or consume any type of product that has mammalian meat in it, they could have a reaction, but what's unusual is it could be delayed four to six hours later, and it can be potentially life-threatening. So before we knew about this phenomenon, there would be people who would have a steak dinner at night, then they'd wake up at two in the morning with full-blown hives all over their body and having problems breathing and not knowing what was going on. So hopefully we can raise more awareness about this issue as ticks, these lone star ticks are moving further and further north as temperatures are getting warmer and these ticks are are living longer. Just for some context, one report found a 41% increase in positive alpha-gal blood tests from 2017 to 2021. Dr. Dykowitz, what are your thoughts on the types of plants we grow in non-native species and and how they might contribute to our allergies? It can be a major factor. Uh, Take Phoenix, Arizona, uh, for instance. Uh, Previously, there would have been no mulberry trees around, but they're now widely planted with other ornamental trees um, in that area. And now allergies can be very severe um, in Phoenix. So as we do plant uh, non-native plants uh, for various reasons, we can now start developing regional allergies that uh, break out of what was the previous pattern. Barbie Mills, I have found tremendous relief from seasonal allergies from local honey, not the little plastic teddy bear you find in the supermarket. It helps relieve the scratchy throat and runny nose when taken daily and is healthier. Dr. Rubin, what can you tell us about local honey and how that might work? Well, local honey is great for cough and sore throat uh, for people who are over 12 months of age. Um, but this is an old wives' tale. It's a myth. Uh, the concept is is that when somebody consumes local honey, they're consuming a little bit of the pollen that's from that region. However, we don't really see that the pollen that's in the honey is actually the pollen that people are allergic to. Uh, bees are helping pollinate plants with pollen that is heavy and sticky, and that's not what people breathe in on a regular basis. They're breathing in pollen from wind-pollinated plants such as birch trees or, or ragweed pollen or timothy grass, as an example. And that doesn't really show up in this type of honey. And in some small clinical trials, they haven't really shown any benefit when you consume local honey versus placebo. So you know, I'm all for supporting um, local beekeepers and all of that, but it's really a tasty placebo. But as I heard you at the very beginning, it may relieve certain symptoms like a scratchy throat? Like a sore throat or, or cough, but it's not going to help with nasal symptoms or eye symptoms that, that people uh, think it does. Carrie in Ohio emails this. Can you discuss the possible relationship between weakened immune systems and an uptick in allergies and how to strengthen immunity to handle allergy season? Dr. Dekowitz, is there a link? Um, Not clearly. Um, Of course, oftentimes we're looking at patients who are coming into our office where they're having repeated infections and we're trying to sort out whether their immune system is down uh, in terms of making them more uh, vulnerable to viral infections or bacterial infections. Um, In terms of allergies, uh, that's a separate arm of the immune system. Certainly, if you're having repeated colds and bacterial respiratory infections and you happen to also have uh, allergies developing to 
uh, airborne problems, airborne allergens, you're going to have a worse uh, outcome. We got this message. Both my children and I are pretty miserable. I take Claritin year-round. Otherwise, I'm absolutely miserable. I'm afraid to get allergy shots because of potential side effects. Can't win, and it's going to get worse. Dr. Rubin, let's talk about allergy shots. Who's a good candidate for that treatment? So allergy immunotherapy, these shots are designed to essentially give what people are allergic to very tiny but incremental doses via injection over time to desensitize the immune system or or just make it like a little bit numb to uh, what they were sensitive to before. And so this is a long labor intensive process to get it done, but it can be highly effective. And for patients that I look for, I'm trying to find people who have tried various over-the-counter medications, they're not finding relief, or they're having multiple sinus infections per year, and it's significantly impacting their quality of life. And if we do allergy skin testing on them and find that they're sensitive to multiple allergens, or even if it's a single allergen, um, we would then have a a discussion in depth about how um, these shots can be beneficial. Now, we talked about some non-medication approaches to addressing allergies, including um, air filters and, and a sort of DIY air filter that you described, Dr. Rubin. But we got this email from Kate who says, one easy solution with no side effects, though children under 10 likely shouldn't try it, is nasal irrigation, a.k.a. a neti pot, which is a saline solution. Dr. Rubin, what about the irrigation of your nasal passages to help address um, congestion or allergy symptoms at all. I'm a big fan of of nasal saline irrigation, and you can do it in in children if they can tolerate it. It's not easy for everybody, Um, but there's different devices that can be used. There's um, there's spray canisters, there's neti pots, there's saline rinse bottles that come in different varieties. Um, There's even electronic devices that can can, uh, help push the, the fluid into the nasal passages and out. And what that's designed to do is you have to first clean out the nasal passages because throughout the day, you're breathing in many different types of uh, particulates, whether they're allergens or irritants. Um, And if you're able to just flush that out initially, that's going to help slow down that inflammatory process. Also, if you're going to use a nasal spray, when you flush out the nasal passages, you now have clean, fresh tissue that you can put the medicine on. The medicine will start working more effectively. And I strongly encourage many people to to do this every day. It's not comfortable to do, uh, but you can get used to it and can provide a lot of uh, relief without using medication. And briefly, what sort of solution do you need to make sure to use if you're going to do that irrigation process? You have to make sure that you are using distilled water. You don't want to use tap water unless it was previously boiled. If you use tap water, there is a small risk of having a severe infection with it. And also you can get uh, salt packets that you can buy at the store, or you can even look online to make your own mixture to help uh, with drying out the nasal passages. As allergists seeing worsening allergy symptoms, what are you doing to prepare yourself and your patients for the road ahead? Dr. Dykowitz? One point I would like to make is we've already got a good assortment of over-the-counter and prescription medications to give relief. When oral antihistamines are not working, it's time for nose sprays. There are practical ways that you can uh, put the spray in. Don't snort in. Bend over. Uh, keep that position for 10, 15 seconds. You'll get more of the nose spray in there. And nose sprays of the type of the nasal corticosteroids and nasal antihistamines can give you relief when the oral antihistamines are not doing the job.
Well, we'll have to leave it there. That's Dr. Mark Dykowitz. He's the Chief of Allergy and Immunology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. He's also the Raymond and Alberta Slavin Endowed Professor in Allergy and Immunology. And Dr. Zachary Rubin, an allergist and clinical immunologist at Oakbrook Allergists in Illinois. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.